All right, if everyone wouldn't mind taking their seats, we'll try to get started. <laughs> yeah, I would like that. Okay, the, uh, the handouts are on the way downstairs, so why don't we go ahead and, and get started. Why don't we pray? <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us safely here this morning. We pray for those who are continuing their journey. We pray that you would send your spirit among us, Lord, as we reflect upon, as we reflect upon your glory and your nature. Lord, teach us through the history of the church, and teach us through... Um, the time that we set aside, and the devotion that we offer to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning's topic is a little complicated, um, so I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, quite important. This is, the most, this is the most significant argument the church has had so far. Uh, both in terms of the theological import of the argument, as well as in terms of uh, the political support the opposing position gained. This, is, this becomes also the most hard-fought um, fight the church had. Uh, Arianism. Uh, the, the syllabus reports that I'm going to be doing uh, two things today, um, and I've actually moved the second one, Apollinarianism, to next week. It's really a Christological heresy, and I wanted us to have more time to talk about this Trinitarian issue, so that's going to actually take place next week. Okay, so, um, so the Arian controversy marks a shift in the focus of Trinitarian theology. Both modalism, which was the idea that three persons were really one, they just seemed to be three, and monarchianism, which was the notion of a hierarchy among the three, proceeded primarily from the problem of the three persons. Now with Arianism, the problem proceeds from considerations about the divine nature itself. Um, so the following, the following are premises that everyone, including you know, both Orthodox and Arian Christians, are going to share. The first one is that the divine nature is ungenerated and self-existing. Okay? So no one is disagreeing with the notion that the divine nature is ungenerated and self-existing. The second idea is that the Father is ungenerated and self-existing. Okay? Nothing too fancy so far. The third idea is that the Son is neither ungenerated nor self-existing because he gets his being from the Father. Okay? Therefore, either, on the one hand, the Son is not God, which follows from combining the first premise and the third one, or the divine nature must undergo some change in order for the Son to be God. Namely, it must go from being ungenerated to being generated. 
Now, everyone admits the divine nature cannot change, which rules out the second option. Therefore, the Son is not God must be the true case. Now, the following premise is accepted by the Arians, but not necessarily by the Orthodox. Because the Godhead is unique, transcendent, and indivisible, and cannot be shared or communicated, for this would involve a division and a change in the Godhead, which is impossible. So to be clear, the Arians and the Orthodox all accept T1 through T3. The Orthodox do not accept the conclusion drawn from T1 to T3 by the Arians. Okay. Now, note in this last premise, T4, um, that God, because God is unique, transcendent, and indivisible, uh, that, that divinity can't be shared or communicated, because that would involve a division and a change in the Godhead, both of which are impossible. The Arians are assuming here that the only way that communication and sharing can take place is in some fashion which causes division of that which is shared. Right? So if I've got four apples and I share my apples with you, I don't have as many apples as I had before. Now I've got two apples and you've got two apples, or maybe I've got three and you've got one, depending on how nice I am. Right? I've, I've got three and you've got one, I'm just telling you. Um, this is an assumption based upon matter that orthodoxy is not going to accept. We're going to say, no, there are other ways of sharing something that don't cause that thing to have to be divided up. Now, it follows from T4 that anything that has come into existence must have come into existence not by communication of God's being, but by having been called out of nothing. What that amounts to is a denial of the fact that there's any way of coming into existence other than having been called forth out of nothing, okay? Which is the way that we came into existence, right? First we were not, and then we are. So, this leads to the following four propositions, four Arian theses. One, number one, the sun must be a creature, created not out of God's being, but out of nothing. This means that when we say that the Son is begotten, we are speaking metaphorically, we are speaking loosely. What we should say is that the Son is made or created. Two, the Son must have had a beginning, because all creatures have beginnings. First they are not, then they are. This is what it means to come out of nothing. Christ was not created in time, in fact he created time. But before time, Christ was created. The Arian slogan is, there was when he was not. This cannot mean there was a time when he was not, for that is false, but before time, in the space of eternity. At one point, the father is alone, and at a subsequent point, he has a son. Arius felt that to claim that the son was co-eternal with the father would be to say that there are two self-existing principles, and therefore two gods. Evil Arian premise, premise number three. The Son cannot know the Father directly. As a creature, even the most noble of all creatures, the Son is still finite, and therefore is not capable of knowing an infinite God. Evil Arian thought number four. It is possible for the Son to sin, or rather it was at his creation. But God foresaw that he would not sin, and therefore made him unable to sin. Remember, son here doesn't mean the human nature of Christ, which the Orthodox agree was capable of sinning, but never just didn't. It means the, the, uh, the divine nature, the second person of the Trinity, was able to sin. Okay. Now, the Arians amassed an impressive array of scriptural quotations to support their views, basically all those that seem to suggest that the Son is a creature or the Son seems to be deferring to the Father. So, for example, Proverbs 8 in the Septuagint version, it reads, The Lord created me, and they, that's put into Jesus' mouth. Or Acts 2, 36, God has made him Lord and Christ. Romans 8, 29, the firstborn among many, right? Colossians, again, this firstborn of all creation, and Hebrews 3, 2, who was faithful to him who made him. Okay. 
not how the Orthodox interpreted those scriptural passages, but those are the types of passages the Arians are going to latch on to to say, look, see, he's a creature, see, he's not the same as God, right? Get it? You, can, you wouldn't say that about the Father, so clearly there must be some di difference in their nature between the Father and the Son. So you might be led to think, in what sense is the Son actually called God if all this is true? Right? Because we definitely talk that way, so what's up with that? Well, Arius says he's only called God out of courtesy, not because he is really God. Thus, the Son is more of a demigod than a god, much less God with a capital G. This doctrine that Arius ends up with is the logical end of monarchianism. That's the one that claims that the persons of the Trinity are not of equal dignity. Because if the persons of the Trinity are not of equal dignity, and because the divine nature doesn't allow you to have greater and lesser degrees, being simple, then the lesser members of the Trinity will have to be dropped from the rank of divinity. Okay. So whenever you, whenever you get involved in a Trinitarian doctrine that makes the persons unequal in their dignity, ultimately the outcome is going to be that those lesser dignified persons are going to be, their status as gods is going to be revoked eventually. Now, you may not do that, but someone's going to come after you and think about what you said and feel that it makes a whole lot of sense. Right? And it's going to happen. That's Arianism in a nutshell. Right? So the, the outcome of Arianism is that Jesus is not affirmed to be God any longer. The reasons for that proceed from the understanding of the divine nature from the belief that the divine nature is such a sort that it couldn't be had by two creatures simultaneously without making two different actual individuals. If you think about it, that's the way human nature works, right? I mean, hey, I've got human nature, right? And you've got human nature, and I'm not you, right? So clearly, for as many individuals as there are with the human nature, there are that many humans. So, for as many individuals as there are at the divine nature, there should be that many guys, right? Makes sense, right? Here's the areas. What are your thoughts about this? Yes? I'm just wondering if he had some uh, agenda, if you will, in taking all this, or is this, this more or less what you might call pure research? As far as I can tell, it, it, was, it was not intended in a harmful fashion. Um, in fact, he thought he was being quite helpful. You know, and, and as far as he could tell, um, this was the only right way to understand Christian teaching and the, and the New Testament scriptures um, according to the necessities of philosophy. And it was very important for Christianity not to seem unreasonable and the, to the, the non-Christians around, for it not to seem like a subject of derision and scorn. So, um, I don't think that he was trying to achieve personal gain or anything like that. I think that he just honestly felt that this was the only way this was going to make sense. Right. That changes or other people's views on salvation and resurrection and so Well, it's interesting. That's a very astute point because um, the main response to this that we're going to see in Athanasius is um, going to begin, rather than starting from philosophical principles, is really going to begin from his theory of salvation and say, look, if salvation is going to work this way, then that requires Jesus to be of a certain sort, right? Um, it doesn't necessarily follow that Arius is... So, so there's, there's some break there between... There's a, there's a relationship between what you say about the person of Christ and what you say about salvation, and so that is going to go both ways. I don't think Arius necessarily thought it through all the way, and so I think Arius is to some extent trying to have his cake and eat it too with, this, with the salvation theory. Um, so you would expect a quite different account of salvation than, than the usual one, um, but, uh, but Arius doesn't really seem to see that, because he can, he can always lean on divine omnipotence more to say, well, it may not, you might not think it would make sense that God could do this, but in actuality, he's just all-powerful and can, and can pull it off. I'm being a little vague about what the this of salvation is, because we're going to talk about that a little bit later, and that's going to be a major point of 
Athanasius' response to Arius. He's going to say, look, dude, it can't work. We say that this happens in salvation, but that can only be accomplished by a god. That couldn't be accomplished by a human. Um, so I don't, I don't want to get too detailed about what that is because I don't want Athanasius to infect Arius yet. He will infect him and destroy him. But all in good time. Patience. So, so yeah, so um, that, that's exactly the right question to ask. That's exactly the place to, to look. And that's often when you see heresies about the divine nature or the divine persons, be it be they Trinitarian heresies or Christological heresies, the first question you should, the first thing you should look at is the, the salvation theology, right? How does their salvation theology work? And is it, and can it work? Can what they claim happens in salvation actually happen given what they say about the person of Christ and about the divine nature? Very good. Other thoughts? Yeah. Uh, this, this is, yeah, from, from the, so long as we can tell, somebody had thought about it in something like this way before. There were individuals who probably in trying to understand the Trinity for themselves went in this direction with it. But as far as those who have gave it a theological explication, Arius is the first that we know of. Um, and of course, you know, patristic scholars try to find antecedents for her and Arius and blah, blah, blah. But it didn't come out of nowhere, but this seems to be a, a moment of arrival in the history of ideas. What was the average person in the pew thinking about the Trinity? Well, what do you think about the Trinity? Right? I mean, what do you, I mean who, who here, at some point in your Christian walk, has gone up to some older, more mature Christian and said, I don't, I don't understand the Trinity. Does that even make sense? Like, how does that work? Right? Pretty much everybody, right? I mean, I did it. <laughs> um, and then you kind of wrestle with it a little bit, and what do you do? You reach some sort of equilibrium, right? You reach a place where you feel like it's not intellectually stupid to believe in the Trinity, but if you've gotten far enough down the path that you feel comfortable going the rest of the way by faith without actually understanding how it really works. Right? If that doesn't describe any one of you, if one of you has figured out how the Trinity works, please let me know. This could really help me out a lot in my career and just personally, it would be really great. So see me after if you've got it figured out. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, at this point in time in the church, was everybody asking each other, what do you think in those or did it evolve, did it start to evolve into what we saw in the Middle Ages where this is what the church teaches and this is what you believe? And really, the layperson had no choice. Well, uh, it's, it's, um, transition yeah, so it really is more, it's more flexible at this point. You start seeing an increase in the rigidity of doctrine in terms of the top-down, this is what you must believe. Um, and I, I, I would, it, it's difficult to pinpoint, but I would guess probably in the ninth century, which is a, a good, you know, five centuries, four centuries after the time period that we're studying here, um, in response to a particular controversy actually about the Lord's Supper. Uh, the church starts to realize that um, as the Roman Empire is gone and communication between different parts of the empire is a lot harder, um, the church, it can't react to things as quickly. And so they feel that it becomes more important to start being more decisive about the pronouncements they're making. Also, you know, the church is getting to be, have more power, to be more established, and just to exercise secular authority more in the service of doctrinal disputes. At this point in time, what the church is really looking to do is not to tell you what you must believe, but what you must not believe. It's really trying to exclude things, okay? Um, that's why, so this is, this is a time period when we're going to see the, the Nicene Creed today, um, which is not exactly what you think the Nicene Creed is, but um, in there you're going to start, you're going to see this phrase, Holy Catholic Apostolic Church come up, right? Which is something that has been around for a long time, and the word Catholic has been thrown around for a long time, but now, particularly in light of this Arian controversy that becomes more and more important to emphasize the Catholic nature of it. Well, what does that Catholic mean? Catholic means that they're trying to include as much theology as possible. Right? Catholic is that 
delicate balance between being able to include lots of different opinions about non-essential stuff, while at the same time being able to say that something that is heretical, something that is a wrong opinion about something without which you can't actually be a Christian, while being able to exclude that, right? So Catholicism says, okay, look, you think that we should pray to the Virgin Mary. I think that's nonsense. We can both be brothers because we both worship Jesus Christ. But person C, who says that Jesus is not God, is right out. Right? So at this point, they're focused not on trying to define must you or must you not worship Mary, or pray to Mary, or anything like that, but they're trying to define what must you not. You must not say Jesus isn't God. Okay? So the average person in the pew then has quite a bit of latitude. Right? Within the safe space defined by orthodoxy, you can roam back and forth with, with crazy opinions. You can have all sorts of speculations about what you think heaven's going to be like. Will dogs be there? Will they not be there? Maybe cats will be there and dogs won't. That's very likely. But, <laughs> right? But um, you've got freedom to do that. But the moment you get into something that is more dangerous, we're there to warn you, hey, you shouldn't think that. Right? The, kind of, the people who think that are going to be outside of God's salvation story at the end of the day. So don't be one of those people. But for the most part, theology was being done not by the lay people, but by the, by the bishops. Um, this is an interesting point about church history, that for the first several centuries, it was always bishops doing the theology. After that, it became monks doing the theology, who were monks, monks are ordained priests. Okay? Um, lay people, like myself, doing theology is a late development in the church, and it's something that the church still hasn't really thought about the implications of. What does it mean for someone who has no pastoral authority to be the best trained theological authority? Right. That's, that's an issue that the Protestant church is still struggling with, and the Catholic church is just starting to have to struggle with as well. So we don't know a lot about how much the lay people were thinking creatively on their own about it, but we know that they follow people. You know, when, when Arius comes up, a bunch of people feel like this makes a lot of sense. And just a big flock of people go over to Arius' side. And then more bishops go over to Arius' side, and then they take their flocks with them because they start teaching it in all of their churches. And it becomes a problem. A global problem, actually. Well, let's look at some of the... That's enough on, on the bad side. Let's look at some of the response to this. So... The Ecumenical Council called by Constantine and held at the city of Nicaea in 325, which was the first of seven Ecumenical Councils, the last of which was also to be held in Nicaea in 787, condemned the Arian heresy in all its forms. It's not that the Church stopped having councils after the seventh Ecumenical Council, it's that after the seventh one, no one agreed that they were Ecumenical anymore, because people stopped going to them. Right? The Catholic Church continues to have Church Councils to this day, they count Vatican II as the 20-something ecumenical council. Hardly ecumenical. I mean, they had Protestant observers there, right? They had a, a delegation from the Eastern Orthodox churches, but they weren't allowed to fully participate in it, okay? So Nicaea II in 787 is the last time that the whole church can look at it and say, yes, we were all there in some way. Everybody was represented. After that, it's, you know, there are Western councils and there are Eastern councils and there are the 20 shall meet. But this was the first big one. Really exciting. No one's ever done this before. Christians, theologians, bishops from all over the world are going to come together and figure it out. Good times. At this council, a creed was formulated, which later came to be called the Nicene Creed. This is not the creed you probably think of when you think of the Nicene Creed. That creed is a refinement affected at the Council of Constantinople, which we will study next week. So, when you think of the Nicene Creed, you don't think of the Nicene Creed. You think of the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, right? Um, we just call it the Nicene Creed because who wants to say the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, except for me, because I'm obviously enjoying it, right? <laughs> but, to save you the trouble of having to say Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, we just call it the Nicene Creed. But this here, this is the actual Nicene Creed, right here. This Jennifer comes in just in time. She's very interested in this. <laughs> well, she is. Oh, really? So, so this is, this is what the, the, the earliest approximation at the Nicene Creed says. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, 
and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth. It's kind of like a James Bond movie, right? This is the exposition, right? The boring part that you get before all the action starts. It just seems like it's really... It's even, it's very inelegantly worded, right? It's very turned in upon itself, and it's like, you know, that is to say, what we mean by that is, right? It's kind of awkward. It's like a teenage creed. Who, because of us men and because of our salvation, came down and became incarnate, and became man, and suffered and rose again on the third day, and ascended to the heavens, and will come to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit. But, as for those who say, there was when he was not, Arians, and before being born he was not, and that he came into existence out of nothing, or who assert that the Son of God is from a different hypostasis or substance, those are synonyms there, or is created, or is subject to alteration or change, these the Catholic Church anathematizes. Anathema means eternal condemnation. Okay? So the church is agreeing with God's judgment, which will shortly follow upon such folks that they are to be eternally condemned. That's the Nicene Creed. Right. No mention of, if you're familiar with the actual you know, Nicene and Constantinopolitan Creed, you might marvel at the lack of mention of the church in which you believe, or the baptism, that the Holy Spirit kind of gets tacked on there. You know, like, oh, by the way, we also believe in the Holy Spirit. And fairies. We believe in fairies, too. You know, just like <laughs> random stuff thrown in there at the end, right? No, yeah, so a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot to be desired here. There's still room for further refinement. But this was their first pass at it. Um, a couple of points about this creed. The notion of being of one substance with the Father, which in Greek is homoousion, the same substance, uh, this is going to become the decisive point of Nicene theology. When someone refers to Nicene theology, they're almost always talking about the one substance thing, right? It gets translated into Latin as consubstantial, which just means exactly the same thing, you know, with substance, same substance. Um, nevertheless, it is not exactly clear what this is supposed to mean. The specification of its meaning will be the subject of a debate that will last much of the rest of the fourth century. Nicaea was 325, Constantinople is 381. For the next 60 years, there's going to be debate as to how to take this term, and there are going to be three clear camps that are going to emerge. It was clearly meant by the fathers of the council to emphasize the full divinity of the Son. It is not clear that they meant it to mean that uh, the Son's being and the Father's being were one, which is the ultimate interpretation that is given in Orthodox theology. The last idea was probably only implicit in their thought. So my point here is not that we've distorted the intention of the council by making it mean that. It's just that they hadn't gotten that far yet. I think, I think they all, the ones who were still alive when they got to that formulation later on agreed that this, was what they, this is how it should be taken, namely that the Father and the Son have the same substance, not just a like type of substance. But, um, but they don't, that, that, that wasn't the way they were thinking of it yet because they just hadn't progressed that far in their thinking yet, it seems. <coughs> it's a small point. Note how little attention is paid to the Holy Spirit here. All that is said is that we believe in Him. He is not asserted to be God, co-equal to Father and Son. This lack means that the Nicene formula falls short of being a fully Trinitarian expression. Right, right now we have a Benity two guys that are co-eternal, co-equal, right? And then we've got a third guy who's hanging out somewhere, but the, the council leaves it an open question whether the Holy Spirit is consubstantial, whether the Holy Spirit is co-eternal. And until you get that, until the Holy Spirit comes into full dignity with the Son and the Father, you're not at Trinity yet, okay? Again, I'm not saying the church didn't believe in Trinity now. I'm just saying that we're, we're groping towards how to express it in a way that's that's really robust. Questions about Nicene Orthodoxy? Yeah, Preston. Oh, God. Yes. 
distinguish between the spirit in its own right. You're not saying the coming of Christ will be both the judgment of the dead and in the that's correct, um, which is an interpretation that some, some folks will put, you know, the timing of the coming of Christ is the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. And, of course, modalists love this. That's the, that's the interpretation they have to take. But you can also be orthodox and say this, too. You say they're two different people, but the coming of Christ, is, what that looks like is for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on all flesh, right? Um, the grammar of the creed is pretty clear about this, that living in the dead is the object of judgment and Holy Spirit is an object that goes all the way back to Jesus Christ. So we believe in God the Father in an, in an object case. We believe in Jesus Christ in an object case. A whole bunch of stuff about Jesus Christ. And we believe in the Holy Spirit object case. Yeah. Craig. Um, it seems to me that they don't say that Jesus died, but I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's under Right. Yeah. That, that that comes back in later. Yeah. Its absence here, I think, is not to be understood to mean that he. That there's a question as to whether or not the death was real, which that heresy will come up. Um, but rather, just that that wasn't what they were focusing on repudiating. Um, its absence in this creed opens the door for people later on to start questioning that, which is a problem. And so uh, that's why in Constantinople they're going to really tighten that up and say, you know, he was dead and buried. He rose from the dead, right? <laughs> yeah. But you know, there's also, what also isn't here is there's no, in, no mention of Jesus Christ descending to the dead, which was in the Apostles' Creed. And very early on in the Apostles' Creed was changed from descended to the dead to descended to hell. And there's absolutely no mention of that here. Yeah. Yes, yes. So the astute Sunday school goer will note that um, every week in church we've been doing these really awkward creeds. Um, these creeds have been uh, specifically chosen, unfortunately by me, um, at the request of the pastoral staff to go along with where we are in the church history class. So um, said astute observer will note, or will have noted in fact, that the creeds have been getting longer and more formulaic and have been becoming a little bit less awkward and a little bit more familiar, right? Um, which is all going to come to a, to a blossom very, very soon when we arrive at the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, which is the creed to end all creeds. Um, it in fact, is the creed that ended all creeds, the last one. But, so, from the very beginning, you can see the church was do making these, these creeds. What they were, were they were handy formulas that they could use when they were teaching new believers. Right. So someone comes and they want to be a Christian. In the early church, what that looks like is you, you study for a year. And only at the end of that year will they admit you to the mysteries of the church. You don't even see the Lord's Supper if you're not a Christian. At that point in the service, everyone who's just visiting is asked to get up and leave. You're done with church for the day. Goodbye. Everyone else stays, and only those who are going to get to partake of it get to see it, get to be there when it happens. Right, so um, your baptism may or may not precede this, as Mark was alluding to last week. It's a very common practice in the early church to put off baptism as long as possible, so that it could cover more of your sins. Um, there was just this. They believed that it, you know, it wasn't as if your sins committed after baptism weren't covered, but they just felt that they had this real clear moment where they were sure that sins were washed away, and they just wanted to have that cover as much as possible. Um, but um, but the church found these creeds to be helpful ways of, you know, little things that people could memorize and take home with them and use as like a, a sort of cliff notes to what they believe, um, especially in times of persecution, right? As the Roman government is trying to trick you into confessing something that you shouldn't be confessing, you can just lay it up against the creed. You can compare it to the creed and see if it works, if it fits or not. There are still many liturgical traditions where the creed is inserted in a point of the service immediately following the sermon. The, the, the pastor finishes the sermon, and the very next thing that happens is the entire congregation stands up and says the Nicene Creed together. The logic behind that is, if the pastor is preaching any nonsense, it will immediately become apparent to you when you recite the creed. And so the pastor knows that his sermon is going to immediately be judged by the history of the church in the creed that's going to be followed and confessed by all of the people. 
Um, it's quite cool. It doesn't keep pastors from saying nonsense, but it does keep some flock members from going along with the nonsense too blithely. So, so the church has been doing it for a long time, and at this point in time, especially now that they have, uh, they have a global legitimacy, they feel like, hey, you know, now we can actually really get together and bang out a good one. And that's going to be how we're going to answer this, this challenge, is that you know, we're going to come up with a creed that will make it easy, because so many people are confused, and so many people are going over to areas. If we have a handy creed, it will be easy for them to, to keep it all straight. Yeah? When I was learning the that's older that's older English um, but the, the modern translation of living to translate quick is uh, is, an, is, a, is equally good a translation of the original text yeah. I, that was confusing to me when I was a child yeah <laughs> I'm gonna run hard so I can get ahead <laughs> Just a question on, on the Holy Spirit. We read that we read the Gospels about Jesus' baptism. Mm -hmm. It's fairly obvious and fairly clear. It's not clear to the early churchgoers, was it as obvious? I mean, voice of God, Spirit coming down the form of God? Mm. You, or was that something they couldn't you like, grasp? Are, you have an excellent theological instinct. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that before. You have an excellent theological instinct. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Hold on to that for a second. We're going to come right back to that. Um, Athanasius. Athanasius against the world. The life of St. Athanasius. The first man in the West to be declared a doctor of the church. One of the four great doctors of the church according to Eastern Orthodoxy. Exiled five times, at least, for his staunch defense of Nicene Orthodoxy, stands as a witness to the widespread and powerful influence of Arian thought. Athanasius stood at the head of the party that developed Nicene doctrine into full-blown Trinitarian theology, which entails bringing the Holy Spirit more into focus. The chief characteristics of his thought are as follows. Now, he was at Nicaea. He was a junior theologian at Nicaea. He was a special assistant to the bishop. Um, and then, he, so he probably went along with the bishop to Nicaea, and um, in fact was a, probably a very powerful, influential voice there. Then he succeeded that bishop and was uh, exiled a lot after that. So Athanasius began not from a philosophical conception about the nature of the Godhead, as did Arius, but rather from the nature of redemption. For him, Christ had to be God. Otherwise, Christ could not have caused men to share in the divine life. This is a concept called divinization, the idea that men are made like God through Christ's saving work. And it's a common one in the early church, and it's going to become even more important in the fourth century. Okay. A standard part of the early church's notion of salvation is that what Christ is doing is not just removing our sins, yes that, but also transforming our nature so that they're much more like the divine nature. They, they get this from the Incarnation itself, that human nature is being united to the divine nature in the closest imaginable way, right? The, uh, the closest way it could be done without them becoming the same thing, namely in one person. Because of that, when you put something so impressionable as human nature next to something so excellent as divine nature, there's going to be influence. Human nature is going to get better, right? And that's what we come to share in when we put our faith in Christ and are baptized. Now we don't just have, we don't just have normal old crappy human nature, or we don't just have restored to the human nature we had before. We've got a human nature that's now even more like the divine, even more noble than it was in the garden. Divinization in Greek, theosis. Um, pretty common aspect of everyone's theology back then pretty rare these days, but um, it wasn't something that anyone was going to argue with at that point. So the Arians weren't going to come back and say, oh, we don't believe that divinization crap, you know, actually we're just, that's, so we don't need this whole, this argument's not going to work. They'd say, oh yeah, yeah, we do think divinization happens, that's true. So we need another explanation for why that happens then, right? Well, God's divine power could just do it. That's cool. We'll just do that. But Athanasius says, no, salvation comes through Christ. And the work of salvation includes this divinization. And only God could accomplish this. 
Therefore, Jesus must be fully divine, or he's not going to be able to do the job that he's set for. Next point. If Christ is the Son of God, then he must be of the same nature as God. Right? You parents out there, your children, they're human, right? I mean, basically, <laughs> deep down underneath. <laughs> think about them when they're sleeping, not when they're running around. If, if, if one of you, if, if one of our lovely mothers in the church were to give birth to a goat, there'd be a lot of questions asked, right? There'd be questions for the father, there'd be questions for the mother. Oprah would have questions, right? It'd be a whole big thing, because this isn't the natural order of things. Things reproduce after their own kind. So, barring some sort of cosmic comic book type accident, you expect human parents to have human children. So you would expect a divine parent, God, the Father, to have a divine child. Next, unrelatedly, Athanasius clarifies that homoousion, that same substance deal, means that Christ and the Father have not just the same type of substance, but the actual same substance. He will say that the divinity of the Father is identical with that of the Son. And that's not like us. My humanity is not the same as your humanity. Right. But there's it, and that's how they're one. That's how they're the same. There's only one God, there's only one divine nature, one instance of it. But there are different persons who have that divine nature. Yeah. Now, as much against Sibelius, who is your modalist, as against Arius, um, Athanasius says that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. So it's not that they just, you know, they have the same substance, and that substance just appears as Father at one point and as Son at another point. That was modalism, that was Sibelius, that was heresy. Uh, rather, there's one supreme principle, one indivisible, unique Godhead, which both the Father and the Son have. Because it is indivisible, they must have it in its entirety. Therefore, each is fully God. Thus, if the Son as offspring is other than the Father, he is identical with him as Son. As offspring, he's other. As Son, he is identical. Okay. Lastly, Athanasius also argues the full consubstantiality of the Spirit with the Father and Son. Among other reasons, if the Spirit is to make us partakers of the divine life, he must himself be divine. Only with this assertion does Trinitarian doctrine come to a flowering. Here at last we have a statement about the full divinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with an equal commitment to their unity of essence. The problem with Trinitarian theology, the difficulty of Trinitarian theology, I don't care how you go about trying to parse it, if you want to espouse the Trinity, this is what you must come to terms with. You need a way of saying that God is three persons that somehow makes sense of the term person being applied of the divine persons as well as of human persons, but that, makes, that understands the way God gets to be persons to be different than ours. If God becomes a person in the same way that we become persons, there are going to be three gods. Because we become persons in such a way that we... Div we separate the human nature off, and that my human nature isn't your human nature. And so we're three people. So there's got to be something similar and something dissimilar about the way in which God is a person and the way in which we are a person. And the dissimilar thing is the hard part. Furthermore, that dis whatever it is that, that distinguishes Father from Son and Son from Holy Spirit can't be so strong a distinction that it actually breaks them up into three different gods. But it can't be so weak a distinction that they only appear to be three persons, right? So, in the Christian tradition, you have a choice between emphasizing the unity of God more or the persons of the Trinity more. Which, however, if, if you start off really strongly for the unity and really push that, your challenge is going to be how to make the distinctions make sense without seeming like they just seem like distinctions. Likewise, if you push really hard on the distinctions between the persons, which is going to be all of our natural proclivities, anyone with any touch of evangelical theology is naturally going to focus on the differences between the persons because we think about them very experientially and very individually. Right? We pray to Jesus very, with, a very, um, with a very personal devotion that we don't necessarily have with praying to the Holy Spirit, say. Um, 
if you start from that standpoint, then the challenge is going to be how to motivate the unity of the Godhead. This is a constant tension in Christian theology. It's not, it doesn't make Trinitarian theology not work. It just means that you have to, you have to be wary because the more you push on the one, the harder you make it to get the other one going. Okay. So you're always trying to hold these two things together. It's the, it's the highly improbable assertion that one equals three. Okay. So it's characteristic of any good Trinitarian theology that it has to have two competing commitments at the same time. A commitment to A is one as well as to A is three. Athanasius does this. Right. And he does it while making full space for the Holy Spirit within the three part. Nicaea arguably was kind of saying two and some change, right? And Athanasius says, no, three. Don't get confused. The Holy Spirit must be of equal dignity with Father and Son. And yet they are one indivisible, unique Godhead. That's what we're after. Athanasius gets an A plus on Trinitarian theology. <laughs> Your turn. Question again. It's interesting, it's helpful, at least it's someone who does confessional theology who actually has been writing this topic this week, that um, the, throughout church history, we have been struggling to distinguish between these two poles. One is the distinctiveness issue, and the other is the, divis the divisiveness issue. In other words, you can have distinction without division. And it strikes me that this is a, we're hitting it here, and this is going to continue. This, it, I just thought it would be interesting. I mean, this is the very issue that Protestants and Catholics are wrestling with. The distinctiveness between God and the church, but not divided. And a high Protestant, such as ourselves, would say there's a distinction between God and church, but there is no division. And then right at that connection is the mystery. How it, and so he, he mentioned the fact that, you know, that how a lot of this focused on the idea of the Holy Spirit divinizing us. Well, they would want to make clear that the Holy Spirit is not us, and we are not God. You know, and as you might know, in the Eastern Church, and there's been a lot of discussion about that. But we're going to say, well, no, God is God, and we are not, and yet somehow we partake of the divine nature. Somehow we are being you know, incorporated into that. So I just, and Calvin wrestled with it a lot. And so this is a very helpful, you're seeing it, I mean, Venus, I think, does a great job of sort of bringing us into this way of thinking. But it's going to continue. This whole issue is a major, major component of Calvinism and its relationship to the, you know, the Roman church at the time. So, yeah, this is a great... This is a great conversation, and it's going to continue for 2,000 more years. <laughs> yeah, thank you for that. It, it, uh, it also is it's reflected in the way that the church understood itself, and that Catholic I was talking about earlier, right, that when you look at the church, the church is one. But with the, that oneness is of such a sort that it has room for all of these differences of opinions, differences of worship styles, you know, different seas, uh, different cities in the empire had different ways they would do the liturgy. And we have some evidence of this historically. There are some liturgies from some different places from this time period. And they weren't all exactly the same, but they all had the same elements, you know, in the, in the sense that our, our worship here, though not recognizable as liturgy by a Catholic, nevertheless is trying to follow a lot of that same form that we can discern in even these very early liturgies, and that's what you see in the sidebars in the bulletin, right? So the sense that church is one, and yet that oneness is not contrary to there being diversity within that. Um, and as Preston is saying, you know, just as with the Trinity, how to understand that and how to keep, how to push those borders without breaking one or the other is an ongoing discussion. Um, if we if we were to go go on past our time period in the Middle Ages, then we could would get more into uh, more theology as to how you protect God, the difference between the divine and the human, right? Uh, the way that you can understand the difference between who God is and who we are in such a way that it allows us to be drawn so closely to God, really uh, more closely than you might think is possible, without in any way endangering the difference between us and God, which is another thing that the church has to really reflect upon. 
another thing modern theology is particularly bad at, right? We do nothing so well in contemporary theology as blur the line between the divine and the human. We are, we're always making God into the, an image of ourselves. We're always thinking about God in human terms. And we're always thinking that we are the ultimate measure of everything in reality. Right? That's, that's the story of the last three centuries of modern thought. Um, there were safeguards in place for that, that unfortunately lie outside of our time period. So, moving right along. Other thoughts? Yes? Still the fourth century. This is we're we're now so with Athanasius we're now in the intra-conciliar period. We're between Nicaea in 325 and Constantinople in 381. Um, his whole ter turmoil filled career is happening in that 50 some years. There. How many Jews think of the Spirit of God? I mean, I, I know that Jews certainly don't differentiate persons in, in the Godhead, mm -hmm. but in a sense there is this language of of God right from the beginning. Yeah. So how does that, I guess, how does that work out in a Jewish context? Yeah, it changes over time. Um, and I'm, I, I'm not as strong on this as I am on Christian theology, so let me put that caveat out there up front. What I've seen in um, early rabbinic literature, I, I kind of drop out of Jewish literature when Christianity really gets going because I've got something, i got other stuff to do. But um, in the early rabbinic literature, um, you know, ruach, breath, spirit, um, it's, it's, a, it's a crib for life force, and so it's kind of the divine energy activity, right? Um, and so it's, it's no more separate from God than as the spirit of a man is separate from a man. Um, it's more like a way of describing a particular aspect of the divinity, but the Lord our God, the Lord is one, right? Um, I, think they do, I think they do get more nuanced with that and move away from that a little bit, and uh, later Jewish thought, as Jewish thought comes into contact with Greek thought, they begin talking about, they, they begin to have some notion of individual existences. They don't, Orthodox Judaism never goes so far as to divide the Godhead into persons. Um, there's some non-Orthodox Judaism that starts to play with that under the influence of, you know, sort of Jewish Gnosticism. And then there's the Jewish Neoplatonism that'll kind of mess with those ideas a little bit. But but they flirt with it, and they, they see that it's not, it's not completely inimical to the language of the Old Testament. Um, in this time period, as Christianity is on the ascendancy, um, you know, between the Edict of Milan and the establishment of Christianity as a state religion, any movement Judaism had in this direction is going to swing radically the other way, because they're going to need to differentiate themselves from us, and they're going to need to say that um, you know, we are a corruption of their doctrine, and so they don't want to look too much like us, especially in this time period. So, that said, why do we need to differentiate the spirit as a person? Why can't we say, it is this force that proceeds from Christ and from God, and, and is effective, but why does it have to be a person? One really good reason is the baptismal formula. It, it, the longer you reflect upon the fact that we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, or at least the longer the early church reflected on it, the longer it seemed that these had to be three different realities, that a, a modalist approach wouldn't work. Um, Judaism crystallized itself against 
Christianity as Christianity became more hegemonic in the culture. And I think that's what's going on. But before Christianity was so robust, that was a Jewish... Your question was a Jewish question. Paul was a Jew. I think it's a great question. But why is it necessary? I don't feel like you answered why the Holy Spirit is necessary. This is like the question. Well, the, the, let, 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 me, let me get one more piece of information out there before returning to that answer because there's, there's, well, ultimately what we're getting at here is on the one hand, the scriptural account, and on the other hand, the theology that's developed from that, and the story isn't so simple for the early church, and so we need to complicate that a tiny little bit. Um, so I'll be right back to that. Um, the first thing is just a side point that I, I can't, in good conscience, go through this without mentioning these three guys. Uh, they go under the collective name of the Cappadocians, there were three Greek Christian writers, um, and they were all champions of Athanasian Trinitarianism. And what they did was they extended its philosophical and theological depth and meaning. I'm not going to go into details about what they thought, because in substance, the, the basic outlines of their thoughts isn't going to add really much to what Athanasius said, but what they do to make it work in the intellectual context is really important. Um, so there they are, Gregory of Nazianzus, Basil the Great, and Gregory of Nyssa. Very confusing because there's two Gregories. Um, but these guys are awesome. Man, they were just like, they were just amazing. Like if Arnold Schwarzenegger was a theologian in the fourth century, he would be one of these guys. So, now, further Trinitarian concern. Why do the Christians really need to go beyond the scriptures in the language of the Trinity? This whole homoousion thing that people are arguing about, that it becomes a major, you know, the point of Nicene theology and a major point of contention, is that word isn't found in the scriptures at all. And, it's, it's kind of a cardinal rule of Christian theology that you don't fight over stuff that isn't in the scriptures, right? So, what's up with that? Okay, well, the, the questions that are being asked in this Trinitarian debate are implicit in many scriptural passages, such as the baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This scriptural formula drives us to ask the question of their relation and how that relation is to be understood, right? So, it doesn't, that doesn't yet determine the direction in which we have to we have to settle that dispute, but it brings it up. It makes us ask, well, how is the Holy Spirit different than the Son, or is that, is that a seeming difference or a real difference, right? Um, the early church found that people were, in fact, asking these questions. They were going beyond the Scriptures to ask these questions of how the doctrine in the Scripture, taught in the Scripture works, or what was the precise doctrine taught in the Scripture. And so they couldn't afford not to have an answer for them. And so what they had to do was reason beyond the scriptures and come up with something that was consonant with the scriptures, that they could justify from the scriptures, that they could see, you know, take the faith that they have from the scriptures and see how they can express it in a language that will make sense to people without adding to or taking away from what is there in the scriptural account. Coupled with that is something called the rule of prayer. This is a principle widely used in the early church that in addition to the authority of the scriptures, the authority of prayer was to be considered in doctrinal disputes. And what they mean by prayer here is communal liturgical prayer, what the church did together as a gathered community. The church's early liturgies and prayers had been formed by the apostles and those who learned from them, and therefore represented a direct line back to their teaching. Such things, even if they weren't in scripture, were demonstrably associated with apostolic teaching and thus taken to be normative. Okay? So, they look back and they say, what do we do when we baptize somebody? We baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we see that we were commanded to do that in the pages of the New Testament. Well, what do we do when we, when we pray over someone or bless someone? There's all this, this, this Trinitarian formula built in. We, we use all three of these names together, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, a lot. We, we, we hardly mention one of them. Unless it, we hardly mention the Father without going on to mention the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus might get unique mention because of talking about his unique ministry, but you almost never say Father, even in the early church, without going on to Son and Holy Spirit, right? To them, this was, this was something that, this was a practice that they learned from the apostles. They did this because that's how the apostles did it. And so, even though it wasn't systematized in Scripture, as such, although you can, you can find the three mentioned together a lot in scripture as well. Um, it still has that apostolic authority behind it, right? So the question of the place of the Holy Spirit is an important one. So then you go back to scripture and look for clues, and you look at, well, how did Jesus seem to think about the Holy Spirit? Jesus says, I'm going to go away and I'm going to send the Spirit back. 
And if I don't go away, the Spirit won't come. Right? Not I'm going to go away and transform into the Spirit and come back as the Spirit. Right? Or go away but leave my abiding legacy among you and we call that Spirit. But I'm going to go back, tag team with him, and he's going to come down here now. Right? Well, Molly's question is ultimately not answerable in terms of the scriptural account. Why is it necessary? It's not necessary. Other Christians read it differently. Right? The church's claim is not really that you must, the, the only one way to read the scriptures is to read it that there are three persons of equal dignity. The church's claim is that the only right way to read the scriptures is that there are three persons of equal dignity. And we know that from, not just from the scriptures themselves. That alone, they say, is not necessarily going to settle the dispute. But we know it from the whole unity of what God's work among his people has been. From the way that we have been instructed from the beginning, the way that we've been instructed to pray by Jesus and have subsequently prayed. Um, if Father and Son are two different persons, but one God, and we baptize in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's very hard for them to see that the Holy Spirit isn't also equal to them. Right? That something about that formula makes them feel like these guys are all kind of playing on the same level. A lot of people, a lot of people found it unscriptural. A lot of people found it unconvincing. But it's interesting that the church has venerated the Holy Spirit from the very beginning as God. Right? So if you want a necessary logical argument, it, does, it isn't there. Right? But theology develops in community, and God speaks to the community as well. And Preston wants to jump on it. Yeah, I've got you. I'm sorry. Go for it. I shouldn't be here on Sabbath. I mean, to answer your question, Obama, I'm not sure, I don't think this is what he was saying. There is no salvation apart from the Holy Spirit. None. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. Every aspect of our salvation is predicated upon the Holy Spirit. Um, in the Old Testament, that's the Shekinah glory. That's the whole... There is no salvation apart from that kind of glory in the temple. In the New Testament, that's the ascended ministry of Christ. There is no ministry of Christ today apart from the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's crucial. The early fathers as well as throughout church history, to me, this is the saddest question. I mean, it really makes me wonder if I should be doing a major, major study on the Holy Spirit in the church. Because without the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. You have no prayer life. You have no ascended ministry. That's what I'm thinking, prayer. That's the, the first thing that yeah. comes to my mind. But beyond that, the yeah. whole ascended ministry, I mean, what he mentioned about John, that's the whole argument of John, is that the climax of Jesus' ministry is his ascension. And his ascension is predicated upon the activity of the Holy Spirit that is working in union with the Father and the Son. So it, it's huge. Let's, let's make sure we hear that confession. It's huge. Yeah. And it's maybe a real shame on us as Protestants, evangelicals, if we have not done a better job of understanding that. Uh, that's going to be the whole church, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, anecdotally, and then we'll stop, I, <clears throat> I'm teaching a class on Trinitarian theology at the Divinity School now, and one of the things that we're, so the running joke in the class is what about the Holy Spirit? Because th through the history of theology, the Holy Spirit has been that scrawny, youngest child who is like, wants to play with the big kids and they don't really want him around and he's always running after him like, guys, guys, wait for me, wait for me, guys, come on, let me come. Right. And, and, and you can sort of see that happening because there's all this work put into the Father and the Son and how they relate and what's going on with them and then it's like, and the Holy Spirit kind of follows along. He, and he works the same way. You can imagine it all transfer over. Well, it doesn't all transfer over because so much of the work is specific to the nature of being father and being son, and the Holy Spirit doesn't share in that, right? He, but it's, it's, there's a long, it's in fact, a 2,000-year legacy of underthinking the Holy Spirit theologically. The Holy Spirit has never been shafted in worship and in the prayer life, in, the, in, in what we do as Christians. We've always understood the importance of the Holy Spirit and recognized that with how we pray, but in terms of how we reflect upon what we do and what we believe, the Holy Spirit has always been an afterthought. Um, there's, there's, there's several folks recently who are trying to change this, who are trying to address this and call the church back to more sustained reflection of the Holy Spirit. There's the Pentecostals who are all about the Holy Spirit, every brand of charismatic, right, where the, the spirits work and they really push that. But that's not a, 
that's not a theologically motivated understanding of the spirit, right? That's a signs and wonders motivated understanding of the spirit, which, whatever its merits and demerits, fails to generate a systematic discourse about the spirit. I think one reason you don't see the New Testament making a systematic sort of approach, the Holy Spirit was more commonly believed in by Jews going into the first century. The big debate was Christ, not the Holy Spirit. Uh, if, if you had been reading your Old Testament, the Spirit is everywhere. Yeah. And he's everywhere as God speaking and as God acting. And so the first century writers did not have the burden to defend the Holy Spirit to a Jew nearly to the level that he had the burden of defending Christ as the Messiah. Yeah. So it was the Messianic question in the first century. It wasn't the Holy Spirit question. It was driving much of theology in that era. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's partly what gets worked out in the history of tribalism is that it really tends to focus on Christ. Mm-hmm. Everybody seems to focus on Christ. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit gets passed on because why? Everybody believes in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Um, I would love to spend more time on the Holy Spirit. Um, Dan, what's your point? What's your point? Well, my thought here in, in the last part of it, where you're talking about uh, prayer and the liturgy mm-hmm. coming into force as sort of an extra scriptural thing, mm-hmm. is this ultimately where Roman Catholicism gets the idea that tradition seems to have about equal weight with scripture? Uh, two points. One, Catholicism, it is still not the doctrine of the Catholic Church that has equal rate. It is always tradition understood with Scripture. It's just that, as we've seen in the history of the Church, Scripture requires interpretation, and tradition is a guide to how to interpret it. But doctrinally, Scripture is ha- holds the, per- the first place. And um, it's it's related. It's not the only thing. There was we, we were back with Irenaeus, we talked about a tradition. The Gnostics were appealing to an oral tradition of secret knowledge. And Irenaeus says, yes, there is an oral tradition, but it's not secret, it's public, and everyone knows what it is. Some of that was liturgy, and some of it was other teachings as well. So there's, there's really two parts to this tradition thing, the, the rule of prayer, but then also other stuff that they feel has been, has been passed on um, from, from bishop to bishop, going back to the apostles. So, so yes and no, in both senses. I would love to spend more time talking about the Holy Spirit, but in not talking about the Holy Spirit anymore, I am, in fact, joining the long line of my predecessors in Christian theology. So, with honor, I will submit to their oversight <laughs> and stop here. Um, let's, let's pray and go to worship. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your Son for our salvation. Uh, we thank you that you have sent your Spirit to lead us into all truth, to help us to understand um, who you are, how you've, what you've revealed about yourself, how you have carried out the work of salvation, and how it is, far from being foreign to you, is, if we understand you rightly, the most characteristic thing you could have done. We pray that you would continue to, to teach us as we try to understand the church's struggles in coming to understand your revelation, and continue to reveal to us afresh those things that you revealed to them and to the apostles. Continue to teach us that you are one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal, consubstantial, indivisible, unique. Father, make these truths real in our hearts and in our lives, and may they spare us on to ever greater heights of worship. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I don't think we missed it. Oh, did we?